KMTT, Ki Mitzion Torah. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program, Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Chet Tammuz, Erev Shabbat Parashat Balak, and you are listening to your host, Jonathan Snowbell. The Erev Shabbat program is Lilui Nishmat, Shlomo Yosef, Ben Chaim Shmuel, Finkelstein. Parashat Balak is one of the most fascinating parashiot in my eyes. If uh, we sort of sometimes take things for granted as we're reading a parsha, we read another parsha, and really Chazal put their finger on the uniqueness of this parsha in Baba Batra when the Gemara discusses Daf Yudal, Daf Tetvav, around there, the Gemara discusses the author of the different books of the Tanakh, the different books of the Bible. And <coughs> the Gemara writes that Moshe katav sifro v'sifro shel Bil'am. Moshe wrote his book and the book of Bil'am. And the explanation of the book, what is the book of Bilam? The book of Bilam is Parashat Balak. Why is this so? The, the Torah is Am Yisrael centered. The players in the Torah are always uh, Am Yisrael, while there are surrounding players, Amalek vis a vis Am Yisrael, Mitzrayim vis a vis Am Yisrael, but the players are Am Yisrael, Am Yisrael's representatives. Before Am Yisrael, it's the the fathers of Am Yisrael, whether it's the twelve sons of, of Yaakov, if it's Yaakov, if it's Yitzchak, if it's Avraham, and before that, Noach, Avraham, who are the forefathers of humanity, the main characters remain the same. And here we have a completely different story, where Am Yisrael is in the periphery. Am Yisrael is there, they exist, but the story is not about Am Yisrael. The story is about the king of Moab, Balak, hiring the prophet Bilam to curse Am Yisrael and what happens. And every so often, if we were to watch a movie of Parashat Balak, then we could see perhaps a view of Am Yisrael from a mountaintop, looking down towards, seeing all of them, a corner of them, part of them. The characters are not Am Yisrael in the story. The characters are Balak, Bil'am, and some of the intermediaries, the donkey, the Malach Hashem. But Am Yisrael is not the central character of the story. And in that sense, Chazal called this, these chapters in Parashat Balak, Sifro Shel Bil'am. It's, it's a story from somewhere else. It's a story that, according to Chazal, even is Bil'am's story, which... Moshe transcribed and, and, and entered into the Torah. In f- something even sounding foreign. It's as if we took a, se- a book that doesn't belong in the Torah and we transplanted it into the Torah. Of course, it belongs in the Torah. Moshe put it in the Torah. God commanded him to put it in the Torah. But it's a foreign substance within the Torah. And that is Parashat Balak. And it gives us an interesting ability to view to have a view of ourselves from the outside we constantly view ourselves 
from within our own world, and very seldom are we able to view ourselves from the outside. I'll just give an interesting example. Uh, I, once again, I've uh, brought up this campaign for the listeners of KMTT to respond to us by ans- by writing in on the KMTT page, kimitsion.org, or writing to for your responding to me, writing to my email at jsnowbell. S N O W B E L L at gmail dot com, and uh, there hasn't been any uh, response to that, which is fine because constantly we theorize to ourselves that the listeners of KMTT hear a great cheer in the subway, in the car, and say, "Oh, I should really respond to that." But by the time they get out of the car, get out of the subway, and get into their office or get home, there's a million one responsibilities to do that are more imminent, and we understand that. However, um, this week, uh, my wife did a little bit of Googling, and and she was able to come up with a couple of discussions of KMTT and, and the Arab Shabbat program uh, specifically that were on different blogs. And it was a fascinating thing to look at. To I, I know what I talk about in the Arab Shabbat program, and I'm, I'm aware of what is going through my head, but it's very seldom that I'm able to see from somebody else's vantage point what it is that they think about what what is going on here. And and that is Parashat Balak. Parashat Balak is, we know what's going on within Am Yisrael, throughout the Midbar, and before this Chet HaMeraglim, at the beginning of the 40 years, and after Chet HaMeraglim, from Parashat Chukat and on, which we're in right now, at the end of the 40 years, and with our sins, and our tshuva, and this and that, and what's going on, but very rarely do we look at the what we see from the outside. What are the people who are looking at us saying about us? And here I want to digress for a moment and just raise an interesting question, which discussed uh, with uh, with my wife this week. We, we discussed these typical questions of: Is Balak a bad guy? And one one idea which was raised in the discussion was Balak is not a bad guy. Balak is just doing what he thinks is necessary to protect himself. Uh, Rashi may tell us that in Devarim that uh, Bnei Israel are commanded not to to enter into any wars with Moab or Ammon or Edom. So why does Moab need to protect itself? Well. Maybe Amistrel knows this, as Balak know this. However, I pointed out in this discussion that two things point to the fact that Balak apparently doesn't feel threatened, or that's not the way the Torah views Balak. Certainly when we read Chazal, Chazal have a very clear view of people. They're either very, very good or very, very bad. And Balak, because he's not good, because he's asking Bilam to curse Ben Israel, he's certainly going to be very bad. Um, one proof to the fact that what type of relationship might have existed between Moab and Bnei Israel is the prohibition that we read about in Sefer Devarim against uh, allowing any intermarriage between Moab and Ammon into Bnei Israel, and even t- more strict than any other nation in the world where any other nation in the world can convert and marry in the Egyptians and the Edomites 
can only marry in, in the third generation, Moab and Ammon can never marry in. Even an Amalekite, someone from Amalek, can convert and marry in the first generation. And Moab and Ammon have this unique, dubious status that they can never marry in, no matter how many generations go by. And the Torah says, shortened it a little bit. Because they did not come out to you with bread and water when you came out of Mitzrayim, and because they hired Bil'am to curse you. Now there's different interpretations as to whether both are attributed to Moab, or the first is attributed to Amun and the second to Moab. It's irrelevant. The point is that for whatever the relationship that existed between Am Yisrael and Amun and Moab, they were expected by God, by the Torah, to have been able to understand the relationship as a safe relationship, and they could have come out and greeted us with bread and water, and certainly they didn't need to feel threatened to the point where they hired Bil'am to curse us. And for this they are damned to be outside of Am Yisrael and unable to come into Am Yisrael. In other words, if the Torah is critical of Moab, for hiring Bilam to curse us, it means that Moab did not need to feel threatened. There's, a pr- in fact, a proof in this week's Parsha itself that Moab did not feel threatened, but rather was somewhat disgusted by the arrival of Bnei Israel on the local scene. Ata yilachachu hakahal et kol sevivotenu kilchochashor et They're going to this nation, this congregation is going to come around us and they're going to clear up everything around us just like the ox finishes off all the grass. When the, the word svivotenu, our surroundings, means that they don't feel threatened that they're going to be attacking us, but they're going to be all around us. It sounds very classically anti-Semitic, something where they're disgusted by us. Yes, we're not threatened by them, but we don't want them around us. And we're going to get rid of them. And this is where the Torah obviously sees fault in what Balak does. And and ultimately, God comes to our defense and insists that Bil'am is not left to do what he feels that he wants to do, but he does only what God commands him to do, and that is to bless Ben Israel. And now I come back to our point of looking at that outside perspective. And here I think we come to a very crucial point as to being a Jew. The end of Parshat Balak goes back to the typical narrative of Sefer Bemidbar, of a story with a focus on Bnei Israel, and not from an outside perspective. When we're looking at the outside perspective, we see nothing but the best descriptions of Bnei Israel. And we could read the psukim, but we're short on time, and we'll all read it on Shabbat and see that Bil'am describes Bnei Israel in the high, highest of terms. Specifically, one famous pasuk and a famous chazal on the pasuk: Matovu alecha Yaakov mishkanotecha Yisrael. How good are the tents of Yaakov? And Chazal and Rashi, quoting Chazal, bring down the famous Midrash that the tents of Bnei Israel were very tsanua, modest. That 
They did not face each other so that I could not peek into your tent, you could not peek into my tent. Now the idea of modesty within this context is, is, is modesty. Is Everybody is private, everybody is not involved in other people's life. And even on a most on a on a, on a basic uh, snoot, if we can call it level, that I can't see when you're getting dressed. You're not looking into my house. I'm not looking into your house. B'nai Shah are modest. They're not even. They're not. Their houses don't even face each other. The end of the parasha, when we go back to the t- regular narrative, is B'nai Shah come to the Shittim. This nation that was just described as Matovo Olecha Yaakov, how Tsenua they are, are going out and having affairs out in the open, as the t- story goes on to describe, with the daughters of Moab. What's going on here? This nation that was Matovo Olecha Yaakov is now... 22,000 of them are killed in a plague that eliminates the sinners who are the exact opposite of modesty. They're out in the o- open... And Chazal describe it more that they're 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 worshiping peor, which is a worship of uh, excrementing in front of the peor, and they are sleeping with the daughters of Moab and Nasis, Zimri ben Salu from Shevet Shimon, is sleeping with one of the princesses of Midian. The height of immodesty. How did we get from Atovo Lecha Yaakov to? I think here we come to a, a realization that there there are two vantage points vantage points that one must take on himself and perhaps on his nation. When we are looking inwards to ourselves, we must be self-critical. We must be seeing when when we fail and realizing that we do have failures. However, when God presents us to the world, and it's Balak and Bil'am looking at B'nai Israel, God does a wonderful PR job. God points to the positive things and says, look at the good things here. Could it be that amongst these good and modest people there is there are sinners? I think so. Could there even be large groups of sinners amongst these people? I think so. That's not what I choose to talk about. I choose to talk about, in general terms, what are the general trends of these people? And the general trend of these people is good things. They say, They say, Put on tzitzis. They are tzanua with each other are there those and perhaps even many of those that are exceptions to this rule there are but does that do, where do I choose to describe Am Yisrael from from the general trends or from the things that are not the general trends when people want to talk about equalizing uh, things on the on the terrorist 
agenda. So they say, look, the Palestinians have terrorists and the Jews have terrorists. Baruch Goldstein, Yigal Amir. And it's a silly comparison because Baruch Goldstein and Yigal Amir did what they did and they're not the general trend, they are the exceptions. And we, inside ourselves, have to criticize ourselves and say to ourselves, we have to get rid of these trends that are bad, remove them, perhaps be the pinchas when the situation is necessary, who removes the evil from within us. But when we sell ourselves outside, we have to hold our heads high and show ourselves as a moral people, a good people. I'm running out of time here, so I'm quickly going to go over the microphone to Rav Tavori, and then we'll summarize. This week will be the yard site of Harav Yehuda Leib HaKohen Fishman, who later became known as Rav Yehuda Leib HaKohen Maimon, who was the first Sarah Datot, Minister of Religion in the State of Israel. Rav Maimon was born in 1875 and learned in various yeshivas in the Lithuanian tradition. As a young man, it was obvious that he was very interested in meeting great rabbanim and dealing with their lives and their personalities. He wrote to many rabbanim, and some of the correspondence has remained, and we've seen letters that he's written to the Ragachever, for example, to the Aruch HaShulchan. Sometimes they wrote back that we don't really know who you are, but we answered your letter anyway. Later on, he did get smicha from the Aruch HaShulchan. Rabbi Maimon did get smicha from the Aruch HaShulchan. He became a Rav and a Magid in various communities in Europe. In 1900, he became involved with the Mizrahi movement and declared himself as a lifelong Zionist. His Bikiyus in learning was well known. He was a real Tamid Chacham and knew a tremendous amount of, of Bikiyus. And he felt that perhaps Bikiyus is the better approach rather than learning Bi'iyun. And later on, we'll talk a little bit more about that. In 1913, Rav Maimon went on Aliyah to Israel. After a while, he had a problem of with the authorities and left for a few years to go to America. But he came back to Eretz Yisrael and built his life in Eretz Yisrael. He was friendly with Rav Kook. He identified with all the leaders of the religious Zionist movement in Eretz Yisrael. The year after Rav Kook was Niftar, he founded the institution which is called today Mossad HaRav Kook, which was an institute for publishing Sfarim, for a library, for a, a kolel, and this Mossad Rav Kook was actually housed in the same building as Rav Maimon's personal house. His own personal library was held in, in that building. His personal library had at least 40,000 volumes. Near the end of his life, Rabbi Maimon became quite blind. When I was around 16 years old, I visited Eretz Yisrael, and my father took me in to meet Rav Maimon. He took me for a walk around his library, and he pulled out Svarim to show me the rare Svarim, unusual Svarim, 
and he read the Shar page, the introduction. He used to read it to me. He would re- he would read it to me and explain to me what the book was about. All this he did when he couldn't read read anymore, when he couldn't see, and he just knew his own personal library of forty thousand volumes at least so well that he could take you for such a walk in the library. Being known as a great Zionist leader led to the a very famous day in pre-state Israel history in June of 1946. Many of the leaders of the Zionist movement were imprisoned on that particular day, which was named Black Saturday, Shabbat HaShchora. Rav Maimon, of course, was arrested by the British police and he refused to enter the car. He refused to go into a car because it was on Shabbos. So a number of big British policemen had to pick him up against his will and put him in the car. Rav Maimon used to joke about it. You see that they needed four uh, great uh, policemen to arrest him and was a rather frail, short person and how much effort had to be put into arresting him. His arrest, especially the conditions under which they forced him into a car on Shabbos, created a big fear in Eretz Israel at the time. Rav Maimon while being a great Tamid Chacham, was primarily known as a great lover of Eretz Yisrael, and as such he became friendly even with David Ben-Gurion, who at that p- point was one of, obviously one of the great leaders, who was about to become, in 1948, the one who would establish the State of Israel, who would announce the establishment of the State of Israel, and read this Declaration of Independence. Since Rav Maimon was a close friend of Ben-Gurion, Ben-Gurion was very anxious that Rav Maimon come to the ceremony and indeed be one of those people that would sign the Megillat HaTzma'ut, the Declaration of Independence. Rabbi Maimon was in Yerushalayim and the, the, sec- the signing of the Declaration took place in Tel Aviv. And at that time, of course, transportation between Yerushalayim and Tel Aviv was almost impossible. So Ben-Gurion, in his anxiety, in his interest, in getting Rav Maimon to come to the ceremony, sent the piper. It sounds funny today to say the piper. The plane that they had, Rav Ben-Gurion put at the disposal of Rav Maimon so that he should come on Friday to sign the Declaration of Independence. It is on, still on tape. You can hear how Ben-Gurion read the Declaration of Independence. Rav Maimon then stood up and made the bracha of Shechiano. When the State of Israel, in its infancy, had to work how to work a state, a state and religion, Rav Maimon was chosen to be the first Saradatot, the first minister of religion, and he had very ambitious ideas. One of the famous ideas that he had was he wanted to establish or re-establish the concept of a Sanhedrin. He actually wrote a monograph about it, Chidush HaSanhedrin B'Mdinatim HaMechudeshet, to rejuvenate the concept of the Sanhedrin in our rejuvenated country. This proposal obviously met with a lot of opposition and was a big issue at the time. There are a number of uh, stories that are told about it, but one of them is a classic story of Rav Maimon, that they asked him, let us assume that we can go forth with your project and build a Sanhedrin. But the Torah tells us the requirements for a person to be in Sanhedrin. It, the Torah says, you, when Moshe was told 
about establishing the court, it says, You have to choose Anshei Chayil, people of might, Yirei Elokim, people who are God-fearing, Anshei Emet, people who are the truth, who are truth, truthful people, Sonei Batza, who despise bribery. So, they said to Rav Maimon, in our generation to find Anshei Chayil, Yirei Elokim, Anshei Emet, is really difficult. But you know, maybe it's possible. But how can you find how can you find in our generation people who despise bribery of any sort? And Rav Maimon's classic answer was, if you pay enough money, you can find anything. If you're willing to spend for it, you can find even people who are The issue of the Sanhedrin became a classic argument between Rav Maimon and the Haredi world, or at least part of the Haredi world. The Briskerov, Rabbi Revelvel Soloveitchik, was known to have entered a tremendous controversy with Rav Maimon about this point. It became bitter, personal things were said, and attacks were made on both sides. When I was a student in Yeshiva's Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef in RJJ in the mid-50s, I remember a time when the Yeshiva actually was told to go to picket about religious coercion in Eretz Israel, and we were told to go to the United Nations and other places where people were protesting against those people that wanted to establish the Sanhedrin in Israel. My father, who was a Zionist leader, refused to allow me to go to this uh, protest. And of course, as a young student, I had no idea what the protest was. I didn't understand the issues involved anyway. But uh, I took off from yeshiva that day, and didn't go to the protest. Rav Maimon was a very, very prolific writer. One of the first books that he wrote, perhaps the first book, is a very small book that, to the best of my knowledge, was never reprinted, and I personally feel it's a shame it was never reprinted. It's a little book called Hanosing by Yam Derech, the one who puts a derech, a road, through the yam. Of course, the title is meant... The Yam is called the Yam HaTalmud. The Yam is the world of learning Torah, Gemara specifically. Derech is what we call the approach to learning Torah. And he suggests there what would be the correct approach to learning Torah. And it's presented as, a, as an argument between a Kharif and a Baki. Between a person who learned with great pilpul and a person who was great in Bikiyas in wide knowledge, but did not necessarily enter that world of casuistry, if you, if you wish. The two protagonists of the book, the Kharf against the Bucky, are obviously Rabbi Maimon himself. Rabbi Maimon presented both sides and wished to enter this debate. And as I said before, it seems that Rabbi Maimon personally was on the side of the, of the Bucky. He has letters of approbation printed in that little sefer, and one of them, or actually two of them, are written by the Aruch HaShulchan himself, who praised the, the book and explained that many people have read this book, find it very fascinating, and he really wrote a very warm haskama. He also wrote in that book, in that introduction in his Askama, the smicha for Rav Maimon, 
And of course, the smicha is yare yare yadin yadin. And he calls Rav Maimon Haraf Hagon Hacharaf Habaki Doresh Vechores Balacha Bagada. So his relationship with the Aruch Hashulchan was certainly a very positive one. Some of the other literary works of the, of Rav Maimon were he edited, founded the uh, a journal called Sinai, which has underwent a certain vicissitude in recent years, but nevertheless continues to appear. It was considered a journal of Torah and Mechkar combined together. And of course, for many of the great writers in the 40s and the 50s who participated in the Sinai were great Hamidi Chachamim like Rav Zevin and and many of the professors of the university, many Tamini Chachamim, and the collection of Sinai, many special editions were put out, are, uh, is a very important collection in the world of periodical literature. But perhaps the most famous thing that Rav Maimon did in his literary output was a series of books which he called Sarei Hameya. As I said before, he was very interested in the lives of Gedolim and talking about them and, Gedol- and, their, and stories about them. So he collected tons and tons of stories about Gedolim of the last hundred years and in many volumes he has tremendous stories about the Gedolim describing who they were and what they were. Some people have claimed that the accuracy of the stories is not always 100%. Uh, sometimes a story could be told about one person and it really did not occur in the historical context that Rav Maimon quoted. Uh, be that as it may, it became a very popular book, the Sari Hameya. Many editions were printed and it's a very interesting and a worthwhile book to read. He also, Rabbi Maimon also edited many other books, had many ideas of publishing books, for example, in a certain amount of years since the Ramam's birth, in, book, in, in honor of a different person, one of the Gaonim, he published books, collections of articles, of which he was the editor. As I said, Rav Maimon was Nifter, when, this week, the Yardzeit is on Shabbos, tomorrow, and in 1962, he was Nifter, he was over 87 when he was Nifter. He left a family, mostly the ones that I know, he left a daughter, Geula, who married one of the scholars who was the leader of Mizrahi, Rav Yitzchak Raphael. Yitzchak Raphael was well known as a Chavar Knesset, he became a Sar. But he was also became the head of Mossad Rav Kook. He was also a scholar who wrote various works. And they had a son named Shiloh. Shiloh, the son of Yitzhak Raphael, was grandson of Rav Maimon. And he was, became a well-known Tamit Chacham. And unfortunately, he was Nifta rather young. I'd like to conclude by telling a classic story about Shiloh Raphael. Shiloh Raphael, Ben Yitzhak Raphael, Ben Geula, the daughter of Rav Maimon, who herself, by the way, was a uh, well-known writer. She wrote a biography of her father and, and other works as well. But Shiloh Raphael became involved in the yeshiva world, became very friendly with people like the Ger Rebbe 
and he used to go to the to the to the great gedolim. When he was young, he felt very very upset because his grandfather had entered a discussion or an argument, which I said was rather personal, with the Rav of Brisk with others, and it was not pleasant for him that he was he found himself in the yeshiva world, and the yeshiva world was so upset with his grandfather. So he asked his grandfather if he would be willing to somehow back down and make peace with them, ask them for forgiveness, whatever it would be, whatever it would take to become on better terms with the gedolim with which Rav Shilo Rafael was friendly. They say that Rav Maimon himself then did make peace with these people, even at the, his own feelings, even though his own feelings were very strong about the point, but because of his son, his grandson's request, he asked Mechila from the Gedolim. Someone said that they went to Rav Maimon and asked him, how could you possibly do it? Rav Yudah Leib HaKoyin Maimon, Yudah is known as a big takif. He was known as a person who kept his own opinion, who was refused to bend. How could it be that he you know, gave up and asked Mechila from someone else? So Rav Maimon's answer was, I can't help it. It's based on a Pasuk in Chumash. The Chumash says about Yehuda, Lo Yasser Shevet Mi Yehuda. The staff will not leave Yehuda. Yehuda will hold his staff and will not bend. But then the Torah says, Ad Ki Yavo Shiloh. And here in our case, Yavo Shiloh was interpreted until Shiloh, my grandson, came and asked me to. And therefore, he did go and ask Mechila from Gedola Israel. Rav Maimon's historical legacy will be found in, in Mossad Rav Kook and certainly in the great literary output that he began. The, publica- the publications of Mossad Rav Kook still continue to this day. Rav Maimon's Svarim will live forever. May his memory live with his Svarim as a great Tamid Chacham and as a great leader of religious Zionism. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. A Jew has to move back and forth between different perspectives. He has to realize that there is a perspective where he's looking into himself as an individual, looking into himself as a nation, and there... He must be critical, looking for every strand of evil, strand of wrong actions, and get rid of it, eliminate it. And then there is a perspective where a Jew faces the outside and he faces the world. And there he has to stand up proud and say, this is the Jewish people. The Jewish people are a moral people, are people that care about their brothers, that do good deeds, that worship God. That that is who the Jewish people are. And and the, all these side issues that are problems that we save the dirty laundry we save for ourselves within ourselves. It's not something that we take to the outside. And this is a lesson we learn from God. Does God not know that Ben Israel is an Amkshayorif? He's the one who coined the phrase Amkshayorif. Co- coined the phrase, pardon me.
He coined that phrase. He knows who we are. He knows our weaknesses. And he will tell us our failures and our failings. But when God is selling us to the outside and us, and when we are in God's footsteps, when we are selling ourselves on the outside, we don't take our dirty laundry outside. We hold our our heads high and we say to the outside world, Matovo Olecha Yaakov, Mishkenotecha Yisrael. Shabbat Shalom.